0: week, Sears files for bankruptcy, Jones Energy details discussions with bondholders, Ultra Petroleum seeks debt exchange. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City.
1: And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Senior distressed Debt Analyst Kyle Owusu sits down with Reorg Emerging Markets Content Coordinator Erwin Cifuentes and Reorg Americas and Europe reporter Harvard Jang to discuss the latest on Steinhoff, Millicom, and Venezuela, including the latest on Peta Vesa and X developments. It's Sunday, October 21st.
0: Sears kicked off the week by filing for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York during the early hours of Monday. Speculation began last week when the retailer appointed restructuring veteran Alan Carr to its board. The debtors received commitments for a $1.83 billion DIP ABL facility from certain pre-petition ABL lenders, choosing to roll up pre-petition credit extensions. The DIP also includes $300 million in additional availability. Debtors also announced that they, quote, intend to solicit and have made substantial progress for a $30 million junior dip facility. Eddie Lampert controlled ESL Investments has indicated an interest in providing a substantial portion of the junior financing. In describing the junior dip, the debtors say that it would not be necessary for the debtors, quote, to operate during the first two weeks of these cases, but it will become necessary thereafter. In describing the state of the company, the debtors claim, of the almost 700 stores, approximately 400 are four-wall EBITDA positive. The debtors identified 142 underperforming stores that require prompt closure. The debtors also filed a lease rejection motion, seeking authorization to reject 217 unexpired leases and related subleases. Sears Holdings is currently in discussions with ESL regarding a stocking horse bid for the purchase of a large portion of the company's store base, although there can be no assurance that any transaction will be consummated. Judge Robert Drain, who presided over the Sears debtors' first day hearing on October 15th, Granted, all of the debtors requested first-day relief, subject to some minor modifications reflecting the court's comments and over certain objections, raised by the U.S. trustee.
1: The steering committee of the ad hoc group of Jones Energy bondholders lambasted the company's, quote, dysfunctional board and a tainted negotiation process around a possible balance sheet restructuring in a sharply worded letter to ENP's board, which was reviewed by REORT. The group, which holds around ninety percent of Jones's notes maturing in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, is represented by Davis Polk and Hulhan Loki. The group also challenged the role of Q Global, a holder of Jones' senior and junior debt, in the company's restructuring process, and asserts that the board's quote, refusal to negotiate a restructuring is a clear violation of its fiduciary duty. The letter, dated october eleventh, was obtained by Reork after Jones provided an update on August discussions with holders of its debt and equity in an eight K, including the ad hoc group, and containing a business plan and term sheets. The discussions did not result in an agreement and indicated a wide split between the parties on the value of the merge-focused operator. The company also said it would, quote, defer its pursuit of drill co-financing. In a presentation on the deal, Jones said it had sought financing through a drill co-structure to, quote, accelerate value in the western Anadarko Basin and hold by production in its acreage in the merge, Jones said that it had been near final close with an exclusive counterparty, according to the presentation.
0: Following an announced exchange proposal to unsecured bondholders, Ultra Petroleum is seeking an amendment from revolver and term lenders. The exchange was announced earlier in the week and would seek to exchange up to 80% of the company's 2022 notes and 55% of the company's 2025 notes into new partial pick-secondly notes maturing in 2024. The exchange was agreed to with holders of 79.5% and 53.4% of the 2022 and 2025 notes. The exchange agreement is subject to approval by a majority of revolver and term lenders. REARG learned that term loan lenders have been offered a 50 basis point early consent fee and a 25 basis point increase in margin in exchange for consenting to an amendment that would increase junior lien capacity to allow for the company's recently announced bond exchange, sources told Reorg. The amendment proposes up to $900 million of junior lien debt capacity, while offering certain lender-friendly terms aimed at reducing value leakage, including tighter restricted payments and investment baskets, and a cap on the amount of first lien capacity, among other things, sources said. An ad hoc group of term loan lenders, led by Guggenheim, is seeking to grow to over 50%. Sources said the group had previously organized with Struck and Struck as the company sought to negotiate potential transactions with creditors, according to sources. Ultra's capacity to exchange its existing unsecured notes into secured debt will require additional availability under the $325 million revolving credit facility due 2022 and the 2024 term loan, which are peri-passu. According to Rio Covenants, the existing debt documents set a ceiling of $50 million for secured debt that may be issued in exchange for unsecured debt, regardless of whether the exchange debt is first lien or second lien.
1: On the island of Puerto Rico, a new creditor group with more than $10 billion of combined Go and Cofina holdings has formed to lead negotiations for consensual restructuring deals involving Puerto Rico's central government credits, according to six sources familiar with the matter. The new group will bring together holders of general obligation, public building authority, and other central government debt with island bondholders and it will also include creditors that have significant Cofina holdings according to the sources. The new group is expected to comprise members of the ad hoc group of general obligation noteholders, the QTCB noteholder Group, and the Bonistas del Patio group of Island bondholders, according to two of the sources and could also merge with a recently formed constitutional debt group that controls nearly $2 billion in Commonwealth holdings, according to three sources. Two of the sources said the new group is expected to work with Davis Polk as its legal advisor and DuCera Partners as financial advisor. On Friday afternoon, the Promisa Oversight Board released the COFINA fiscal plan certified by the board on Thursday, October 18th. The new certified fiscal plan projects a total of about $15.1 billion of sales and use tax revenue from the fiscal 2019 through fiscal 2023, or an average of roughly $3 billion annually. This represents an increase from the $14.156 billion projected in the September 7th draft. Separately on Friday, the Oversight Board filed a motion seeking approval of the global settlement that would resolve the Commonwealth COFINA dispute. The motion calls the settlement a, quote, watershed moment in the Title III cases for the Commonwealth and COFINA. Concurrently with the filing of the motion, the Oversight Board filed a disclosure statement and plan of adjustment for COFINA incorporating the settlement terms. The COFINA disclosure statement will be presented to the court for approval at a hearing on November 20th with objections due on November 13th. Also in Puerto Rico, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, in its capacity as Commonwealth agent, filed an urgent motion on Wednesday asking the court to set a hearing date and briefing schedule in connection with a motion to enforce the Commonwealth-Cofina stipulation. At issue is the filing of the motion by the Promesa Oversight Board seeking approval of its settlement of the Commonwealth-Cofina dispute. The Commonwealth agent argues that the Oversight Board, quote, has no authority to file such Rule 9019 motion pursuant to the terms of this stipulation. The scheduling motion also focuses on the timing around the Commonwealth's fiscal plan. Judge Laura Taylor Swain granted the UCC's motion and set the hearing for November 20th at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And finally, the PROMISA Oversight Board scheduled a public meeting for Tuesday, October 23rd, at which it will review the fiscal plans of the Commonwealth and the University of Puerto Rico.
0: Other top red stories of the week were, Number one, Mission Coal Files Chapter 11 in the Northern District of Alabama.
1: Number two, David's Bridal to skip October 15th coupon payment, use grace period to work with creditors towards consensual out-of-court recap.
0: And number three, Nine West Files Amended Plan of Reorganization Incorporating Equity Holder Settlement.
1: And now, here's Jim Holloway in Houston with the week ahead.
2: Thank you, Connor, and good morning, everyone, from Houston, where we're currently in the embrace of the brutal southern winter, mercury hovering around a frigid 71 degrees. And it's a court heaven calendar this week with important hearings for the likes of Sears, Toys, and American Tire. First up, Monday, October 22nd. Well, there's not really anything consequence on the schedule, although that could change quickly. But on Tuesday, October 23rd, the ProMesa Oversight Board has scheduled a public hearing to review the revised fiscal plan's of the Commonwealth and the University of Puerto Rico. For toys, there's a district court hearing in the Fung-related manners, and out of court, it's a deadline for Alta Petroleum turn loan holders to consent to an increase in borrowing capacity so that EMP can get that up-tier exchange done with the unsecured. Wednesday, October 24th, that's our busy one, Monotronics, oral arguments in the Delaware Chancery Court related to the transaction support agreement with the Senate, which is opposed by some of the convert holders, a UCC formation meeting in Sears, the legacy noteholder adversary trial in iHeart, and an omnibus hearing in Toys R Us. Thursday, October 25th, at Sears again, a store closing procedures hearing, and a little reminder that earnings season lurks just over the horizon with First Energy reporting its third quarter results after the close. First Energy's third quarter call is the following day, which is Friday, October 26th, as is the second day hearing in American Tire. And that's enough of my yakking. Back to y'all in New York.
0: Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, the Rear Europe and Emerging Markets teams discussed the latest on Steinhoff, including the relationship with America's Covered and recent filer mattress firm, Millicom, and Venezuela.
3: Thanks, Karen. My name is Kyle Owusu, I'm a Senior distressed Debt Analyst with Reorg's Emerging Markets team, and I'm joined by journalists Erwin Cifuentes, who covers LatAm primaries, and Harvard Zhang, who just got back from London and mainly focuses on cross-border situations. Today, Harvard will tell us how Mattress Firm fits into the global Steinhoff structure, Irwin will talk about Millicom's bond issuance which we are particularly interested in because telecom operator Melicom is a peer of Digicel, another topical credit we've discussed in the past. And finally, I'm going to cover Petavessa and the latest Crystal X developments. So let's dive in with Harvard, um, starting with Steinhoff. So Harvard, um, big picture wise, can you give us an overview of what listeners should know if they haven't been
4: following Steinhoff? Yes, so Steinhoff is a um, South Africa-based retail business I've been covering since uh, the beginning the beginning of the saga. So they rigged up about 10 billion euros of debt and really went on a uh, buying spree and expanded from this a uh, town uh, called Stellenbosch, which is close to Cape Town, to Europe, to Australia, and to the US. And of course, we saw the um, the subsidiary mattress firm filing for uh, bankruptcy protection earlier this month. And to, our, uh, to give our listeners a quick overview, at the end of last year, the company put out a press release saying it found accounting irregularities and the CEO Marcus Eustace resigned. Steinhoff went from an investment grade company plunge uh, plunged straight into distress. Hedge funds, um, of course, you know, bought in and all the parties advisored up and scrambled to do analyses and um, figure out work chart and intercompany claims and guarantees, etc, etc. The next big thing was in May when the company uh, announced a restructuring framework to extend that maturities by three years without cash interest. And on a Friday in June, close to the end of the day, I remember it was like uh, 4.30pm, um, Steinhoff got its physical half year numbers out and it was awful. They had to write down 80% of their March 31st, 2017 cash to um, 620 million euros. In July, Steinhoff disclosed a um, restructuring roadmap and they call it uh, Project on um, Orange and in August the company said it would use a um, consent solicitation for the more than um, $2.5 billion of convertible notes, um, a UK insolvency measure called Company Voluntary Arrangement for Steinhoff Europe and an English scheme for Stripes US um, which is Mattress Firm's um, parent. And earlier this month Mattress Firm filed for um, Chapter 11 to get rid of uh, expensive leases.
3: Great, so yeah, I'm glad you uh, touched on Mattress Firm, and I know we've talked about this in the past, sort of diving into the relationship um, between Mattress Firm and some of the other Steinhoff entities. Um, the the relationship between uh, Steinhoff Europe AG um, and Stripes, the, the Mattress Firm Hold Co is, is particularly interesting. Um, how, do, how do those intercompany claims um, relate uh, or sort of play into the bankruptcy filing and then um, also uh, how does the structure relate to the new money providers in Mattress Firm?
4: Yes, so So um, on the Europe side, so Mobile and Steinhoff Finance, which are two um, Europe entities, lent 3.2 billion euros to Stripes US or um, what people involved in Steinhoff like to call um, Sushi um, back in 2016 during the mattress firm acquisition. And in the Chapter 11 plan, the treatment of this intercompany claim, the 3.2 billion, is that Steinhoff Europe AG will take a um, 49.9% equity stake in the U.S. business and cancel that intercompany loan, and a group of um, Europe creditors are providing new money in mattress firm uh, in the form of a uh, 100 million Europe. Uh, Euro stip term loan and a 400 million exit term loan in return for um, you know, 51.1% of equity and um, 150 million uh, 15% pick term loan. Um, if you look at the lockup agreement, which is uh, like the guideline of the restructuring, there's a new money section, and it stipulates that only investors with holdings of more than the $75 million uh, get to participate in the, uh, the new money opportunities before restructuring completes. And if you're in finance holding, your participation will be through the uh, $900 million interco uh, loan between finance and SSEAG. Uh,
3: interesting so you've got the the 400 million term loan and I think 125 um, the ABL so that new money component in return for roughly half the company and then the pick loan um, and you're saying that uh, based on the terms in the lockup agreement only holders with roughly over 75 million get to participate and then the finance holders will participate pro rata based on their claims through this interco loan. Um, which, you know, again, everything with the structure is so complicated, but, um, in addition to um, sort of the the new money providers, obviously they're going to benefit directly from mattress firm and from this turnaround, should it be successful. Um, how are how are Steinhoff Finance creditors and Steinhoff Europe AG creditors going to derive value from mattress firm?
4: Yes. So um, the Steinhoff Finance and C.I. Credit- creditors will receive three-year ten um, percent. Take back paper um, secured by Steinhoff uh, Finance and SEAC assets. Um, f- this is like in exchange for what they're holding already. Um, SEAC will own 49.9% of Mattress firm. Um, Steinhoff Mobile will. Owns um, It actually owns Steinhoff Europe, and Steinhoff Finance ultimately owns Mobile, so assuming there's value, it will flow upwards to both um, creditors. And also, if you are um, your creditors participating in the new money deal um, in Mattress Firm, there's return there also, but I guess it's a um, risk-return kind of thinking.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can, you can definitely see that, it, that if this goes well, the new money providers, um, especially, uh, are, are going to do well on the deal, but obviously with um, sort of the retail restructuring, there's always that fear of liquidation. Um, so in any event, going forward, what are we what are we watching out for in Steinhoff?
4: So as we are recording this podcast, we're expecting uh, the convening hearing for Stripes US or um, Sushi for um, October 24th and the CVA launch for SEAG around the same time. Um, Steinhoff said it would publish fiscal full year 2017 result by the end of December. And we are also expecting the P. PWC report to come out around the same time and fiscal um, 2018 numbers will come out in January
3: great thanks a lot Harvard and I think we're going to uh, turn now to Irwin, who's going to ask me questions about the ongoing uh, crystal X developments
5: thanks Kyle um turning to Venezuela the outstanding 2.5 million and half percent bonds due 2020 for PDVSA have rallied in the secondary market by around 10 points since the middle of last month. Could you please explain the circumstances surrounding this jump in the 2020s? And how might this affect an upcoming modernization on this debt?
3: Yeah, sure. So, the bonds were, were trading in sort of the low to, low to mid-90s um, and they fell about four to five points around august 9th on the back of the delaware district court judge stark's order authorizing crystal x's request uh for a writ of attachment over over uh, pdvh shares um pdvh is a a Pedevesa subsidiary that ho- that owns um Sitgo, um which is uh, an oil and gas refi- refiner um the, the bonds continued to decline after an August 23rd decision, which concluded that the district court had authority to enforce its first August 9 order, um, and they reached around 80 uh, in mid-September. Um, in the meantime, you had Petavessa Crystal X, um, BlackRock Contrarian, Rosneft, and Sitko, um all filed um, briefs. Um, the, the Petavessa BlackRock contrarian uh, Rosneft and Sitko were arguing um, that the sale process should, at the very least, uh, be delayed. Um, and Judge Stark um, of the district court uh, issued an oral order on October 10th um, that arguments will be held on December 20th. And so I think part of the reason the bonds fell in the first place is that the market was worried about Crystal X's ability to wrest control of Sitgo and what that would mean for petavessa's upcoming $840 million amortization payment um, due October 22nd, 27th. Sorry, um, The senior secured notes are secured by First Lean over Sitco stock. Um, so, in theory, Sitco could be up for play if Petavessa skipped that coupon payment. Uh is a key asset, so Petavessa wouldn't want to lose it. Um, so, the market um, going into this, this whole litigation, part of the bet was that you would continue to clip coupon because Petavessa wouldn't want to default and risk losing Sitco. But of course, there's less of an incentive for Petavessa to make that payment if Sitgo is already lost. Um, the bonds began to triple, trickle back up again, I think, as the market got com- more comfortable with the idea that it's not going to be that easy for CrystalX to sell the, the PDVH shares. And if it does happen, it prob- a, a sale probably won't happen this year.
5: Very interesting, Kyle. Um, so it sounds like if you're a bond bondholder, you want to see this process drawn out as much as possible. Has PDVSA appealed at all?
3: Yes, so Pedevesa filed notice that it appealed to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals on August 10th. Um, Then on August 27th, Pedevesa filed a petition for a writ of uh, mandamus or mandamus. I've heard it pronounced both ways, but it's essentially um, a way of saying that Pedevesa asked um, the higher Third Circuit Court to tell the lower district court to vacate um, the August 23rd district court order and refrain from taking any action regarding Pedevesa's property until Pedevesa's appeal is resolved. On October 9th, Crystal X replied... And October 16th, uh, Penevesa filed a reply in support of its petition. And the issue that's presented um, is whether or not the district court the district court committed clear error and exceeded its judicial authority by entering the order directing the issuance and service of a writ against uh, Pedevese's shares in PDVH and whether the court retains authority to proceed with the execution of the writ during the pendency of Pedevese's appeal. Um, The conditions for the writ... um, of mandamus, the petitioner, so the petitioner here is Petavessa, must have no other adequate means to attain the relief it desires. The petitioner must satisfy the burden by showing that the petitioner's right to issuance of the writ is clear and indisputable, and the issuing court, in the exercise of its discretion, must be satisfied that the writ is appropriate under the circumstances.
5: Thank you very much Kyle and now we'll switch seats so to speak and I'll be ready for your questions with regards to the millicom bond deal
3: great so I'm uh, moving on to millicom Mil- Mil- the the telecom operator um, Erwin, can you give us an overview of the uh, the bond um, you know tell us what what does millicom do where did the bond price what does leverage look like
5: certainly well millicom um, is a telecom company, indeed. Uh, their operations are mainly in Latin America, as well as Africa. On October 11th, Milicom priced a new benchmark, 500 million, six and five-eighths percent, eight-year, non-call three, senior unsecured secured bonded par. Leverage was around uh, 1.8 times for Millicom At the end of the second quarter this year, or roughly two times on a proportional basis. Moody's estimates pro forma leverage at around three times. And what are the proceeds going to be used for? Uh, proceeds from this deal will be used to fund Millicom's recently announced acquisition of an 80% controlling stake in Panamanian telecommunications service provider Cable Onda. The purchase is expected to help Millicom expand its business-to-business, or P2B offering, in part because of Panama's role as a business hub for the region. Millicom said the purchase multiple was 7.9 times, estimated fiscal 2019 EBITDA.
3: Got it. And on October 4th, um, Cable & Wireless also priced a a $500 million eight-year non-call three senior issuance at par, uh, but with a higher 7.5% coupon. Why do you think that is?
5: Well, comparing the two, Milicom is a stronger credit compared to Cable & Wireless, or CWC, as one dead credit market source explained to me. Both are high-yield issuers, though Milicom has a stronger corporate rating than CWC. Uh, Now, as I previously said, Millicom's leverage was around 1.8 times at the end of the second quarter, or two times on a proportional basis. CWC's, on the other hand, was 3.6 times at the end of the second quarter, or around four times on a proportional basis, Um, compared to other regional telecom operators with diversified operations like CWC and Digicel, Fitch highlighted that Millicom enjoys a much stronger financial profile. Now, it's also worth noting that the call option was added to what had been originally marketed as a non-callable bond to investors. One sell-side analyst said to me that the issuers sought the flexibility to call the issue if they felt their credit would improve sufficiently during the next few years. Millicom wanted to be open to the possibility of calling the bond in October 2021 and potentially issuing new notes at a lower yield. Uh, Millicom is rated PA2, PP+, by Moody's and Fitch, respectively, compared with PA3 and BB- for CWC, by the same ratings agencies. Uh, Now, for the record, S&P has issued a BB- minus rating for CWC, but not for Milicom.
3: And uh, what do you think the read-through is for uh, Digicel?
5: Well, Digicel is a peer of both companies, Milicom and CWC. And as we discussed in our last podcast, Digicel is going through negotiations with its creditors. Based on the company's capital structure and current proposal, it's very likely that Digicel will need to refinance bonds within the next two to three years. Uh, For instance, 1.3 billion of Opco debt comes due in 2021. Given a lot can change in two to three years, but these assurances at least provide data points as to where the market is pricing caribbean telecom new newishances thanks and thank you harvard irwin and
3: all of our listeners until next time
1: that's all for this week as a reminder you can access all reorg podcasts on our media page or if you're not a subscriber on itunes and soundcloud i'm connor skelding and this has been the week in reorg